You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bible, open up to um, Genesis, and I believe it's, it's chapter 31, um, and uh, we're actually nearing the end of, of this, this little mini-series called Relentless Grace. It's all about the life of, of Jacob. Um, uh, he's, been a, he's been a tough one for God to reach, as we all are. And uh, God has, has chased Jacob with grace for all of his life. And, and uh, next week, he's going to have an actual little MMA wrestling match with God. He's actually going to see the one he was actually wrestling with. You know that. You saw in the pages, like, he wasn't really wrestling with Laban or his wives or with himself. He was really wrestling with God. He, he wasn't trusting that God was blessing him. And so because he was persistent in his stubbornness and in his blindness, uh, he wrestled the one that was trying to bless him. And but good for us and good for him that God was, had more grace than, than Jacob had sin. And, and God's going to wrestle him right down to the ground. And it's so good for him. He's going to wrestle us. He injures Jacob, changes his name. And out of Jacob is going to come a nation, a nation that is going to give birth to the Messiah that is the one that calls us into family and into blessing today through Jacob, somehow, somehow through Jacob. So listen, I want to start off today by showing you a little bit of show and tell, one of my favorite things in this world. Coach Williams, you know about this, right? Jimmy, this is the patent leather, Jimmy. This is, the, this, is called, this is called the Air Jordan 11. This is the Concord. It came out in the winter of 1995. I got it uh, from my aunt, um, Aunt Teresa in Portland. Concord is the purple that's underneath it right here. And uh, this is a brand new pair. They, they re-released them a couple, couple years ago, I guess, from the last dance. But um, I didn't know this was coming in the mail, man. And it, it just shook my whole world. Uh, it, was, it was just like, what? I didn't even know what these were. I, th- I thought they were kind of ugly in, in the beginning. And then, and then you see Mike playing in them, and Mike can make anything look good. Uh, the commercial, he dunked on a 100-foot rim. Um, they won 72 games that year. It was the year Rodman came in. He came out of baseball. Uh, he had a player of black ones that he wore in the finals against Gary Payton in the Sonics, and, and, and he huddled up on the ground crying because his, his dad had died. You know, he, that's why he retired. So he came back and, like, had a lot of, like, inner battles, outer battles, and just, like, just dominated and came in. And he wore these in Space Jam. You guys ever see Space Jam with Bugs Bunny, one of the greatest films of all time? He wore, the, uh, he wore the Air Jordan 11 Space Jams. They didn't even release them. Uh, they, they just came out with them, I think, for the first time, uh, like a couple Christmases ago. Uh, they always release them on Christmas and people go crazy. But I used to just like clean these with toothbrushes every night. Um, yeah. Uh, I remember the first game I wore them, I was in the St. Catharines of Siena Biddy, Biddy Boys um, uh, parochial school. And uh, there was a kid ready to just go to Duke out of seventh grade named CJ something. I don't remember what his name was, but he was smooth like just peanut butter. And, uh, and I remember we came out there and played against that kid, and nobody cared about CJ because everybody's caring about the Asian with the kicks, right? And uh, those things were just great, you know? And so, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, those shoes were more than shoes. You know, if you've owned a pair of Jordans before, they're, they're, kinda, they're kind of an identity, you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and there's people even, like, that fight and steal and kill and all that stuff for, for a pair of Air Jordans, which is, which is pretty crazy. Um, it speaks to us, though, um, because... Really, if you, you know, if you think about something like that, like a pair of shoes that people buy on eBay for $1,000 or whatever, you know, um, idols, idols are, are not made out of, 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 of leather or patent leather and mesh. I, idols, idols are much more sophisticated than that because idols are made in the heart. Our, uh, idols, idols aren't cars. Idols aren't women. Idols aren't marriages or relationships or churches. Idols are ideas. They're, they're, they're not the things just that we enjoy. They're the things that we believe will save us. They're our salvation. 
They're where we go when we're tired and hungry and lost. They're where we go when we don't think that God's going to give us a name and give us a blessing, give us land and protection. They're where we go to find salvation, not just a hobby. I, I, I think I, I wore those shoes the first time in like being in, a, in, a, in just like a inner city school in Albany, like the only Asian kid on the team, like they recognized me when I had those on, right? That's what it was about. It wasn't necessarily about Bugs Bunny and Space Jam. It was like the identity you know, and it represented manhood, you know what I mean? Like all the other kids had Skechers and LA gear and that kind of thing, but this was like, oh, I've got like a sophisticated, you know, like shoe that people couldn't afford, like not everybody. I must have been special to have a pair of shoes like that. And they were clean, you know, I kept them clean. It meant that I was organized, right? See, it wasn't just about the leather. It wasn't in the leather. I'll put the leather on and throw them away. And once I got out of that idol, I would find another idol. And I've had tons of idols since the Air Jordan 11s. You know, I've I've had the idol of uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, and I've had the idol of Kyra, and I've had the idol of being a church leader, and I've had the idol of, you know, making money and graduating college and so forth. Like, it's, it's unlimited the amount of idols that the, the heart can make a factory for. It's not in the shoes, it's in the heart. And we'll always be from one idol to the next until something were to take hold of our heart. So, so take a look at the Ten Commandments. They're up there on the screen. And uh, the Ten Commandments is is the word, the words, that's what they're called. They're called 10 words, and they're the word that, that God gave to Moses to give to the people the minute they get out of, out of Egypt, where there were slaves and where Pharaoh oppressed them, and God rescued them. He was their salvation and, and, and went up to the hill and spoke to them, and he gives them these, these 10 words. Uh, if we can get them on the screen, the 10 commandments, I think it's, I don't know, slide two. And the way it's built is that, is that the first commandment of all the 10 commandments is to love the Lord your God and put nothing above. And then the second one is, about idolatry, and the third one is about don't take the Lord's name in vain, and then so on and so forth. So you see the first five. But really, it's not really even more complicated than ten. It's really just, it's just the first three and then the back seven. Because if you were to follow the first three, like if you were to put the Lord your God above every other thing, and you were to worship him above every other thing, you'd be free of every other person. And if you could trust God for the promise, then you would never covet your neighbor's wife. You see how that works? You would never, so if you could get the first one right, you'd get the other two through three right. And if you got two through three right, you'd get seven through ten. And furthermore than that, what the Ten Commandments are telling us is that it's actually impossible to follow any of the seven through ten if we don't get the first through three right. In other words, there's nobody not coveting somebody's wife until God is put in the center and first and foremost. Does that make sense? So, so, so what the Ten Commandments are telling us is we don't have lust problems and money problems and debt problems and image problems. We have worship problems. It was always about the worship. And furthermore, what it's saying is that, is that the way that Yahweh called Israel out of Egypt to speak to them and make them a kind of nation that is a garden Sabbath nation, not an Egypt slave nation, is that they were not just supposed to put God first, they were supposed to put God center. So, so for example, you could, you could take your $10 that you earn from your job and give the first one to the church, but if you spend the rest of the $9 on strippers like... First doesn't matter as much as is it center. Like you could spend the first 10 minutes of your day in prayer and in worship and listen to Hillsong and get in the scripture, right? The first 45 minutes, but then you could spend the rest of the 23 hours not trusting him. And the fullness of the words wouldn't be complete. Like Jesus being fulfilled in the law would not be complete. So it's not just put him first, it's put him everywhere. It's put him center. It's put him as Lord and King and Savior. Overall, because if he's not the savior, then everything else has to be the savior. And we go from idol to idol to idol to idol, just ready to break free of the last idol before we jump into the next one. 
until he's center, until he's everything. Not just that he's first, that he's, that he's center, that he's everything. So we've been doing this uh, autopsy on Jacob's life. This is the second sermon. And you go back and listen to the first one. This is the second little part of the little mini, mini thing in the segment of Jacob. And I call it schemes, san- scandals, and, and, and sandcastles. I'll say that again. Schemes, scandals, and sandcastles. And it's, it's, it's the rising action of Jacob's story. And we're seeing the thing rise to a, to a head and then topple down like a, thing of, like a sandcastle, like Jenga, Jenga blocks. And if you go back and listen, I, I talked about it a little bit. It's just too long to cover. It's like, it's a long, long Lord of the Rings type of movie here. But, but the end of it, the Lord shows us something that you could actually find from the beginning of Jacob's story all the way to the end of it. It's an invisible character. It's an invisible enemy. It's, it's an unseen culprit. And that is, we've been introduced at the very end of Jacob's story as he rides off, tries to run away from Laban, that he takes some of Laban with him, which is he leaves Laban but takes his idol. And we're discovering that Although it's never been mentioned and never been talked about from the beginning of the time when you know, Esau was blessed instead of Jacob and when Jacob is like talking to his wives and being passive and his wives are fighting each other to have babies. It's never been mentioned before, but there's been a common enemy the whole time. It's never been about the babies and it's never been about the wrestling. It's never been about Esau and it's never been about the birthright. It's always been about the idols. The idols have always been the unseen enemy. And so Jacob's, Jacob's life is about to take a turn. It's building it is, it is uh, constructed and architected on, on deception and lies. And you would think if he would just learn to not lie and just learn to be more you know, assertive with his family and if he would just learn to prioritize things better, then things would get fixed. But the Bible's trying to make a very clear point. Jacob will always live in deception until he handles his idols, until he allows Jesus to handle his idols. And so in the rubble, in the rubble of every fallen sandcastle, when Jesus says that the, the fool is the one who builds his house on sand, until the storm comes and the wind blows and COVID-19 hits you. And it says the house falls in a great crash. Every house that's built on sand is ultimately built on idols and not on Jesus. Jesus is nowhere, is not center. He might be first, he might be part of it, but he's not center. And so Jesus is saying in that metaphor, in that, in that sermon, he's saying to build a house that's on rock and not on deception, it would need to be built on me. All right, so verse 22 See how the story goes. It says, on the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Verse 33. Am I in chapter 31? Are you all in the right spot? Sometimes my cut and paste is a little bit too, too tricky. All right. So it's 31, verse 22. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So if you're reading the Bible, it's, it's a skill. You're growing in this because it has a whole language to it. It has all this character and all these references. And, and we, we can know Jesus in the Bible at fourth grade, but hopefully when we're in 10th grade, we're not still with the fourth grade reading level, right? So seven is always the number for complete. But the irony is that it's a little riff. He's twisted it to a minor key. And the scripture, the writer is saying, Laban has chased Jacob for seven days. And so maybe what it would be referencing to, if you, if you took that analogy a little bit further, is, is it saying that God's seven, days, God's seven days was about Sabbath and creation. And if you gave God seven days, he'd create a garden where there's rest. But if you give Laban seven days, he's going to create slaves. He's complete slavery. Do you see that? He's chased him in completeness. So Laban, we've found out, is actually 
a bit of a preview for Pharaoh. Like we're starting to see this backwards. And this is the way the Torah works. Like you're not just reading it once. You're like watching it over and over and over again to see these themes because the Bible's always doing that. The world's doing the same thing. The flesh is doing the th- same thing. The devil's doing the same thing. It's just, it ain't new. And so what it's saying is that the world will always promise you Sabbath, but it always delivers you slavery. So, so, the, so the idol, like let's say, is school. And so it's not learning that's the idol. It's the b- belief that learning will open doors for you wherever you are. If I have a degree, they have to open the door. But the lie is that you'll always be toiling and learning and get, there's always another book and always another paper to write and always somebody else that you need to beat, right? There's always some other chair that you need to like to have precedence over and, 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 to, and to, there's always more. And so what is it saying is that education hands out to you and says, come to me, all you who are weary, learn, I'll give you a degree and then you'll have rest. Once you learn it, once you have the degree, like once you get the A and once you, like that's the way the world works. It holds out Sabbath, and as soon as you reach for it, it gives you slavery. That's, what, that's what's going on with, with Laban. And so that's why Jacob has been there for so long, is that he's promised him this blessing, and he's going to get married and, and all this stuff, but he never delivers. He never gives it to him, and there's always another, another seven years to work. There's always more time that you have to give. There's always more pounds of flesh to give. There's always more money that you have to save up for shoes. There's always another pair of shoes you need to get. There's always another team you need to make. There's always another girl you need to impress. There's always another, right? Whatever it is, the world always promises what it can't deliver. It promises Sabbath. Only God gives Sabbath, right? But the, but the world promises Sabbath and gives you slavery. It always gives you slavery. You'll always be in debt to the world. So verse 25, Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead, and when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too, and Laban says to Jacob, what have you done? That's the, that's the Genesis 3, like, repentance moment. Like, the scales fall off. Whoa, like, what happened? Like, what happened when I ate the fruit? What happened in these 20 years? That's the, that's the key line there. What have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives of war. So, so, there, so the blessing family, Abraham was called out of this nation, of all the other table of nations, Genesis 10, to be a blessing, but yet for all that he can help himself with, Jacob or, or Isaac or any of these people, these patriarchs, the, the family that's called out to be a blessing always winds up being the curse. They cannot create the blessing on their own. So here's this family that's supposed to bring shalom, peace to the world, and instead they're leading out captives as prisoners of war. They've meant to bring peace because they've been promised, you know, the blessing from Genesis 12, and yet all that they can deliver, all that Jacob can bring, is war around him. All he has is violence around him. All he has is deception and chaos and problems and so forth. So this is, this is, this is an accurate repentance moment that God is speaking through Laban. What have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters and captives, as captives of war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? This is God actually speaking through the enemy here. Why didn't you tell me so I can send you away? with joy and singing and music and timbrels and harps. But he's lying too, right? So the deceiver is trying to deceive the deceiver. So he's, he's, he's promising rest. He's promising the party. He's promising, you know, timbrels and, 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 and joy and the perfect family and blah, 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 blah. He's promising this. But again, if he came back, you knew from his character he was only going to give Jacob slavery until, you know, until kingdom come. 28, you didn't let me kiss my grandchildren and daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing and I have the power to harm you. Okay, so... He's lost people too. Uh, Pharaoh's babies get killed too, right? That, the first sons of the Israelites get killed in the Exodus story and Pharaoh's kids get killed. So Pharaoh has a Pharaoh. And the enemy's not Laban. The enemy is the evil one. And it's the idol. It's the unseen enemy, okay? But 
He knows enough to be sad he's losing his kids, but he doesn't know enough to repent of his sin. So Pharaoh has a Pharaoh too. And the world, whoever's in the Oval Office is not the enemy. Pharaoh has a Pharaoh too. And it's a dirty system. And it's all deceiving. And everybody's deceiving everybody else. And the blessing family can't seem to help themselves to be able to bring the blessing that they're supposed to bring. They can't bring it. They can't be fruitful on their own. So he's, he's saying, why did you take my kids? It's your fault. I have the power to harm you. But last night, God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you have longed to return to your father's household. Why did you steal my gods? So um, when I was young, apparently I was the poster boy for uh, multi-level marketing schemes. So I would just be in Barnes & Noble, and it just looked like I, had, I want to start a business like on my forehead, like everywhere I went. And so I would get into a lot of these meetings, and they would go on for a long time, and I'm just too much of a pushover. I mean, I never, like, signed into it, but I never really said no, you know what I mean? Until finally, the last time, I, f I finally figured out the trick. Because the multi-level scheme thing, they're going to ask you at the beginning, the, question is, the intro, intro question is always, what is your dream? Because what they're doing is they're, they want to connect the dream with something that they have which is the plan to get money, because if you had money, you could fill the dream. So if, you know, what are you, a church planner? You have more money for the church, you know what I mean? Or like, what are you, you want to have a, you want to be married? Like, you have money, you need to have kids and all that stuff, you need money, right? So you connect the dream to the money and you're off, right? But the last time that I had one of these meetings, I just go, I'm not really into anything that I need money for. And it just shut the whole conversation down. There's literally no more, more thing. So God's making a very profound statement here, right? Through Laban. And, and, and what he's saying is that the world is an is a incredibly powerful place. So that's what he says. He says, I have the power to destroy you. I have the power with one command to kill you. But your God has come in and told me I can say neither good nor evil towards you. So what the scripture is trying to teach us is that although the world is a powerful place, only Jesus has authority. Power is the gun. The authority is the badge. So the world has the power to kill me. The world has the power to take from me. The world has the power to, to take my job. The world has the power to take things away from me. Like the world has power, right? But Jesus is, but, but this scripture is saying, only Jesus has authority. All authority has been given to me. Only God has authority. And so what happens when I sit down with the multi-level scheming guy is when I tell him that I need the money to get my dream, I believe that the blessing is in him and not in Jesus and I give him authority over my life. So, so, the, I, so the, the, the world in Egypt has no power over the church, but the idol inside them does. You see that? Egypt around us is not the problem. It's the Egypt inside of us. And so what happened is, is, is that he's running from Laban, but the only grounds and authority by which he has reason to run and chase Jacob across the desert is because Jacob has his idol. Right? The reason why the world continues to chase us and stress and, and worry and ambition and pride and the reason why we run from slave, slavery to slavery, from slave relationship, from slave you know, dysfunctional relationship, from, from, from bad work environments, from toxic relationships and so forth, the reason why that continues to happen to us isn't because Jesus isn't saving. It's because I've got some of the world's idols in my heart and that gives it authority to speak in. Right? So this is, what, this is what it's saying is that the reason why I'm chasing you is not because... It's not because I'm angry at you, because you have my gods. And the world is a powerful place, but 
but Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the only one um, that ultimately has, has authority in the earth. All right, so verse 31, Jacob uh, answers Laban. He says, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has uh, your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and so take it. Uh, verse 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants and found nothing. So what is this saying? This is saying that, um, that even those that are called by God, the family of God that are blessed and are covered and are being chased by relentless grace can carry idols. And what's even worse is that they can be unaware of it. He doesn't know he has the idol. He has it. And Laban's at his back and and, and, and the creditor and, and, and the, the idol of, you know, the, the, the stronghold of, of sexual sin, the stronghold of jealousy, the stronghold of comparison, the stronghold of contempt, the stronghold of racism chases us, and we don't know why, because there's an unseen enemy that's living in our tent, and it's an idol. There is no dark power that has any authority over us if Jesus is the highest thing in our heart. We are completely free of any Egypt around us and completely free of any Egypt inside of us. And Jesus is not rescuing us from the world. He's rescuing us from ourselves. The Egypt around us is, is, is sort of a foregone conclusion in, in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He understands that he's not removing us from the world. He's trying to get the world up out of us. And the problem is we're blind to it. Why is Jacob's house falling apart? Because he built it on deception. Why is there so much deception in his life? Because he's deceived himself. Why has he deceived himself? Because he inherited it from his father. Because Jacob, because Isaac, his father, was blind, and Rebekah, his, his mom, was, was deaf. Because idols make you blind and deaf. And the first person you deceive is yourself. And so we look out there as though out there is a window, but out there is a mirror. And it's trying to speak to us, even through scriptures like this. The reason why the world would have any power over you whatsoever is that, is that there's something that belongs to the world that's in your heart. And, 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 and although, the world, although the world has power, it, would ha it has no authority in Jesus' name because Jesus says the world can say nothing good or bad about you. So he's unaware. Now look, they go into the tent. He starts looking for it. The idol is in there because if you weren't here last time, one of the wives, Rachel, stole the idol right at the last minute. So verse 33, so Laban went into the tent. And he's looking for it. Verse 30, 34, that's what I read last time. Verse 34, now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside the camel's saddle. She hid the idol. And Laban searched through everything in the tent and couldn't find it. And then listen to what she says, verse 35. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord. I cannot stand up in your presence, she says. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. So it's not written in the text and it's not overt and obvious. But it seems to me that what we know of Rachel's character is she has fought and, and wrought with her sister over the blessing of being fruitful. She didn't want to wait, so she took the mandrake plants and she's trying to create her own fruitfulness on her, by herself. And she's giving her slave girl away to Jacob in order to have the baby that she couldn't have. It seems to me that if we were to try and name and label the idol, it's fruitfulness. She's having her period by the idol. I know that's a little rough for Sunday morning, but it, it needs to be spoken about, right? It's calling it out. That was the idol. Jacob has his idol, his idol and Rachel and so forth. But it's... it's it's trying to take the blessing on your own terms and in your own hands without waiting for it. That's what it is. And so the only authority that Laban had over Jacob's life was Jacob's belief that Laban could bless him. But Laban could never give him a wife or bless him. 
God gives marriages. God gives wives. The reason why Rachel was a slave to her sin and had Laban's authority over her is because she believed that Jacob was the one that was going to get her pregnant or the mandrake plants, but she didn't believe that God was going to do it. So here's a really great inventory point. The place that we're waiting on fruitfulness is usually the place where the idol grows. Because I talk to a lot of people in this church, and that's one of the things about pastor life. You know, you're talking to a lot of people in deeper ways than most people. And what you find when you talk to a lot of people in deep ways is that everybody's waiting on fruitfulness in some way. And the sad part is, is that oftentimes the person that you're meeting with at 2 o'clock is waiting on the fruitfulness that the person at 4 o'clock already has but doesn't care about. So the single person's waiting on a marriage. And the married person's waiting on peace, right? And the peaceful married people are waiting on the baby. It doesn't really matter, but the promise, be fruitful and multiply, demands I trust for it, not that I take it. And in the season between the promise and delivery of the promise is the soil for idolatry. That's the place I'm going to look for. Where are you insecure? Where's their fruit? Where's deferred hope? Where's their place that, that you can't get this thing to move heaven and earth on its own? Where's the mountain that you want moved that you're mad that God hasn't moved it? That's probably where you're going to take first. That's where the idol's going to grow. Laban, they, 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 have, they, they, they don't belong to Laban. Laban has none of their blessings. Living in that place was never where they're supposed to be. God was always going to make them fruitful. God was always going to multiply them. God was always going to give Jacob a wife. All those things were supposed to happen in their due time. The problem was the 20 years were wasted because they spent it taking instead of trusting. And they built idols instead of worship. Where does the idol grow? It grows in the place that we're least fruitful. And it makes you feel like you're, something's wrong with you. It makes you feel like somebody else has the trick. It makes you feel like you've got to go read 16 blogs about the five steps to go get it fixed. But that's always the temptation to go and take what God wants to give you for free. Laban doesn't have your blessing. Jesus has your blessing. The world does not have your blessing. The blog does not have your blessing. Having another coffee with somebody else about how they got it done and how you're not getting it done and how they got it in 10 seconds and you waited 40 years for it, that's not where the blessing is. It's in Jesus. He told you from the beginning that you're blessed. You have a name. He's going to give you a great name. He's going to give you a great blessing. He's going to provide you. He's going to protect you. And you only need to look for him for any blessing. And if you look to anybody else, you will become their slave. You will become your slave. And that will be 20 years of deception. And it will all fall down, right? This is what it is. Every, rub, every rub, rubble, every fallen down family, every fallen down church, every fallen down life, you'll find idols at the core of it. That's where it is in the foundation. So Jacob thinks he's innocent, but he's not. And he's going to invite the judgment of God on himself by saying he's innocent to himself and to Laban. Jacob was angry and took Laban to the task. He says, what is my crime? He asked Laban, how have I wronged you that you hunt me down? As though he didn't have an idol with him. Now that you have searched through all my gods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. It's a scary place to be that we think that we're sinless. We think that there's no business with Jesus. We think that we're beyond that maturity level. We don't have idols anymore. But that's the sneakiest kind of idol that'll sneak right into you because you think that you're innocent, right? But you're ignorant and you're blind. And the reason why you have deception around you is because you've deceived yourself and idols will make you blind and idols will make you deaf is what the scriptures say. You will be the last one to hear about it. But the world will come and, and investigate and look and search, right? And search you out. And he's like, I'm innocent before you. I've been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and your goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring the animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me. You demanded slavery out of me, although you promised Sabbath. For whatever was stolen by day or night, this was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and the sleep fled from my eyes. I'm going to read right on down to the bottom, and I just, let's just listen, and, and I'm going to make the final conclusions. All right, so verse 41 through 55. 
It was like this for the 20 years that I was in your household. I worked for you for 14 years, for your two daughters, and six years for your flocks. And you changed my wages 10 times. That's the deal with the world. Like, as soon as you get the Air Jordan 11, the Air Jordan 12 comes out. It's just as, as quick as that. As soon as you get it in your hand, the blessing dissipates in your hand like a sandcastle. And it's on to the next. And it's always more. It's more bricks with less straw. That's what Pharaoh says. More bricks, less straw. More work, less rest. And it never ends. That's the never-ending cycle. And the, 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 the perpetual enemy here is not the world, actually. It's idolatry. It's not the thing around you. It's the thing that's inside of you. This is what it's saying. Right? So, so, he, so he goes on, and he says, So Laban answers Jacob and says, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I uh, do today that these daughters of mine are about the children that they have born? So he says, uh, Laban says, Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took the stones and piled them in a heap. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Sabadabaduba. And Jacob called it Galid. They can't even agree on the name, okay? So this is the amount of disconnection and the amount of disunity that's going on between these two nations. Uh, 48, Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it was called Galid. And it was called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me. So you're going to judge. The Lord's going to come. You, uh, the Lord's going to judge. He's, I'm right. You're wrong. No, I'm right. You're wrong. The Lord's going to come and judge. I can't wait till you're reckoning. This is what's going on, right? May the Lord keep watch between you and me and, uh, when we are away from each other. I can't look over my shoulder. I got to look over my shoulder the rest of my life at you. I can't trust you. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any of the wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between uh, you and me. He's on my side. He's going to watch out over you, and you better watch your back because he's on my side. Verse 51, Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap, and here's the pillar that I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will, go past, uh, I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, uh, that, you have, that you will not go past this heap to go to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the father, in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. And after they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters goodbye and blessed them. And he left and returned home. So, so this, is the, this is the culmination of the 20 years of life between Jacob and Laban. It's called the heap at Mizpah. It's a covenant that represents the witness of God between them. And ultimately, this covenant is not a covenant of blessing and friendship. It's a covenant of mutual exclusion. It's a covenant of an align and stand, Then I'm not going to cross the street across into your territory as long as you don't cross the street in my territory, and God's got my back because I was right, and he doesn't have your back because you were wrong. This is the nature of this contract. And this is, this is, a, this is a line of hostility. Uh, what do we have from the 20 years? Well, the answer is, after 20 years of life, the two guys only got what God gave them. They were unsuccessful in, in attaining the blessing or getting anything more or less than what God gave them. Jacob has his children. Jacob has wives. Jacob is blessed. It is not because of anything Jacob did. It's just because God has decided to choose Jacob to be the first one blessed, to be a blessing for others. But Jacob was not trusting, and his trust did not conclude in any type of blessing. He was supposed to be the blessing family. He became the war family. He became the one that took and stole and pillaged instead of the one that was supposed to be the blessing so this is where the line in the sand is. This is what it is. It's, it's, it's when everything falls down, the only thing that's left is things that Jesus built. That's, that's what's going to happen of, two, of a 20-year stint. And both men lose. Uh, uh, Laban, uh, Jacob, 
Jacob loses his past. Jacob loses 20 years of his life not trusting the blessing. He just wanders. He's just wandering, trying to take something that God's trying to give him for free, and he exhausts himself and hurts those around him. He doesn't fulfill his calling. But Laban loses his future. And pharaohs have pharaohs too. And pharaoh's babies get, get killed too. And so, and so this, this heap is a sad heap, man. It's a hopeless heap. Like Kyra said, man, she was like, I didn't like your sermon last Sunday. That was a sad sermon. I'm like, yeah, it is sad. It's a, it's a helpless heap of when God's not involved. When flesh is added to deception, and deception is added to slavery, and so on and so forth, there's a spiraling contract. What is the extent and the end of two people spending time together without Jesus at the center, with idols in their midst? It will be a heap, and it will all fall away like sand on the shore. This is what, this is what it's saying. And the blessing, the one that's blessed is not able to be the blessing. The one that's meant to have and hold the babies is always pining after the next one. They're idolizing after their future. They're idolizing after the name and the significance and so forth. And at the end of it all, it all piles down to one heap at Mizpah of hopelessness. But there's a hope, though. There's a hope. And this is two Sundays out, and I'll just grab from it so this won't be the most depressing you know, sermon of all time. But I want you to see that the contrast here, now this is Genesis, I think it's like, 32, let me just read it to you. This is the reunion when, 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 when Jacob leaves uh, Laban and goes return home, he has to face Esau, the first br bridge that he burnt, right? And so he goes and reconnects with Esau, but it's a different tune, right? This is a different hill that they find here. And so when, re when, when, when Jacob meets up with Esau, Jacob and Esau have this scene. So Jacob looks up and there is Esau coming, from coming towards him with 400 men. Laban, or Jacob is terrified of Esau. He stole the blessing and the birthright from Esau. He hasn't seen him for 20 years. Absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. In this case, it makes it more bitter, and he's ready to get dominated by his brother. Okay, he's got a price to pay and heck to pay to Esau. And so he hasn't seen Esau for these 20 years, and here comes Esau with, with, with 400 men. And so, so there's a line here. It says that Jacob has divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two female servants. So the Bible's saying God was good on his promise. He is still fruitful, even though he's deceptive. His deceptiveness does not get in the way of God's grace. Verse 2, so he puts the female servants and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. That's the promised kid at the very end who's going to save them up out of the famine. So God's, God's got his plan intact. He's already got the plan intact despite the 20 years wasted. Verse 3, and he himself went out ahead and he bows down on the ground seven times and he approaches his brother. He had brought gifts. He had brought all this stuff. He's like, man, if I just give enough gifts and horses and if I can just give to him, you know, some of the, some of the plunder that I got out of Laban's hands, maybe, maybe Esau would find it in his kindness and forgive me. And, and, and one of the lines you're going to see in two Sundays is, is Esau says, those gifts mean nothing to me. I'm not in a contract with you. I'm in a covenant with you. And listen, verse four, this is what Calvary looks like, not the hill of Mizpah, but the hill of Calvary. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. And he threw his arms around the neck of his brother and kissed him and he wept. What does man do with 20 years of independence and, and deception? What will, what will man do? He will lie, he'll cheat, he'll steal, he'll corrupt, he'll switch and he'll bargain, he'll take, and then, and, then, and then he'll make himself innocent and vindicate himself by his own word, even though he's lying to himself and he's deceptive himself. What will man do at the heap of Mizpah except, except nothing but a sandcastle on the shore? But this is literally what it's saying in this verse, is that in the same time, as the same time as Jacob was building houses of sandcastles and deception, in his absence, Jesus was building a household of grace. Give a man 20 years by himself and he will build a sandcastle of deception. Give God 20 years 
without you even helping him. And he'll build a whole household of grace. And at the beginning of this chapter, the rivalry, the hostility is thick between Cain and Abel. Soon as brother has a brother, they're going to pull him out there and my blessing's not good enough, so I'm going to kill you to get yours. That's the beginning of hostility. It's been the nation's problem against Israel and it's been the chosen line's problem within Israel, within Israel is that the blessing always thinks, makes the blessing person think they're better and the person that's not blessed always thinks they're bitter. And that creates the hostility between the two. But somehow grace gets his way, God gets its way, and somehow in the place, instead of deception, he has created a household of grace within the family of God. This is the heritage by which Jesus is going to be worth out of. This is the beginning of Joseph's story, which we'll conclude this. We'll take a quick break and get into the Joseph narrative in the spring. But this passage stuck out to me in Ephesians 2. This is our Jesus. This is the deal. This is the deal. There's not people that are, that are bigger and better. There's not people that are less sinful or more sinful. There's not people that are more calculated or a little bit more mature in Jesus or whatever. No, listen. There is broken people that are blessed by grace, period. This is the plan. It's not that the rich people help the poor people get richer or that the you know, woke people help the unwoke people get woke or whatever it is. This is the plan. Jesus blesses all people through himself, by himself, for himself. And we are all building sandcastles in the sand, making contracts at Mizpah until the hill of Calvary. He is the only one that can bring a blessing. He is the only one that can rescue us. He is the only one that can save us. And he is the only one that deserves to be the center of our heart and our affections. We will be slaves until he is. We will, be, we, will be, we will be stealing and pillaging and creating warfare and calling it in Jesus' name until Jesus is the center of our heart and our eyes are open to our own sin and our own idols. For he himself, without Jacob's help or ours, is our peace. Ephesians 2. Who has made the two groups. Okay, so, so Jacob is the insider and Laban is that Jacob is the Jew, Laban is the Gentile. Jacob's line is the line of promise. Esau's line is the line of weighted promise. Esau is going to have to get blessed if he is going to get blessed through, through Jacob. So, so Esau, Esau is the Gentile. So what, do, what, what, what does it look like for, for religion or some kind of a man-made construction of ethics or morals or politics or, or entertainment? What is the culmination of, of a Jew and a Gentile without Jesus? A line at Mizpah. That's it. You go your way and I'll go my way. And we have that in our families. We experience this in our churches. We experience this in our cities with racial discord, right? This is it. What is, the, what is the culmination of two people trying to get along as best they can to get the blessing to, to be fruitful and to multiply as best that they possibly can? A line at Mizpah. You go your way and I'll go my way. Violence. That's it. Violence. Deception. What, what, what can a man do with 20 years on his own? Violence. But he himself is our peace. And he has made, the Jew and the Gentile, the two groups, one he, he's, he's, he's asking this New Testament church in the middle of Ephesus, which is a, a stockbroker trading place with all these different kinds of pluralistic gods and, and slaves and barbarian and women and children and all these different ethnic groups. And he's asking them on Friday to come together and break bread and have communion like we're going to have in two seconds. The same slave master who is pushing, you know, that person to, to, to work and, 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 and that slave is going to have to trust that person within that field, right? And then they're having to come here and break bread together. This is the kind of family, this is the audacious grace family that God is making. He has made the two groups one, and he has broken down the wall of hostility. He has done away with the arrogance and the brutality and the unforgiveness and the pride and the self-loathing and the angst. He has put it down in Jesus' name. He has broken the wall of hostility and in its place given peace. He's the only one that could do it. 
He's the only one that could get Esau and Jacob back together again. He's the only one that could call Joseph's brothers back to him. And in a place of deep offense and brutality and murder, when Cain would have you know, killed Abel if he would have had the chance, right? He has brought, in the place of violence, he's brought peace. That's the gospel. So he's brought peace to the two groups, and he's, he's gotten rid of the wall of Mizpah. Verse 15, by setting aside in the flesh the law, all the things that I thought that I could do in the top 10 ways to be a great pastor and to be a great mentor and to lead my wife well, he got rid of all that, all those commands. And, and, he's, and he's done something so much more than we could do. He's given us his spirit to transform our hearts, to circumcise our hearts, to topple over the idols of our hearts that he might be centered within, within our hearts again. So he's created out of this. Instead of regulations, his spirit, his purpose was always to create a new humanity. Out of slavery, he creates family. Out of, out of contract, of you get yours and me, it, it's create, I'm loving you the way he loved me. I'm treating you the way he treated me. I'm pursuing you the way he pursued me. I'm treating you, I'm living in the grace that he's given me by his mercy. This is what the new humanity is made out of. Okay, and verse 16, and in one body he has reconciled both God through the cross uh, to them by which he has put to death their hostility between each other. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to those that are near, and, pre- and pe- preach peace to those who were far. So this is our Jesus. What does man do with 20 years except create slavery for himself? What does man do except pine away for the next degree and the next Air Jordan model and the next girl and the next, and the next Instagram post and the next like and the next song and the next... I mean, what is man doing except for pining away to go and grab blessings that he already has? What is he doing except making himself a slave by giving authority to somebody? Somebody's approval? Somebody's text back to you, somebody's word that they gossiped about you sideways, that's going to steal you of the blessing if you want it to. If you want to carry that idol off into your tent, you can have it. That's what it's saying, right? So, so this, is, this is the slavery that we could give ourselves to. So James diagnoses it well, and this is the reflection point for 2021 that we would take home. What causes fights and quarrels among you, says James in James 4? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? the desire for the fruit that you don't yet have, that you think you can go and take and muster up on your own? Aren't you going to leave nothing to chance and take, take the world by storm and carpe diem? Because God doesn't give things. You've got to go take it by force. Isn't that why we sin? Isn't that why we, we fail on all the rest of the nine commandments because we don't follow the first one? Because we, aren't, because we don't have the, the altar of, of, for Jesus in our heart Is because he's not first and most and center. Isn't that the only reason why we sin? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight, and you bicker, and you blame your spouse, and you blame the in-laws, and you blame the stock market, and you blame COVID, but it's not about that stuff. It's about the idol. Isn't it because you quarrel and fight because you didn't ask God for it? Don't you know he's the one that gives the gifts? It's not Laban. Verse three, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, what you may spend to get on your own pleasures. And so anyways, it wasn't really asking him. It was asking the idol, really, right? If you think about it, if you're asking for the pleasure and not for the Sabbath, you're asking for slavery. And so it's just another twisted way that our prayers are really just trying to engineer the fruit on our own. Verse four, you adulterous people. So that's the language of idolatry, right? So he's saying, I want you not just first, but center. Every decision runs through, through, through trust. Every, no decision gets around it. I'll give my first 10%, but the rest of the $9 or whatever, I'm gonna do what I want. No, it's like all of it. I want, I'm marrying you. I want the whole thing. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Don't you know when you're friends with, with Laban and you make contracts with him, you cannot abide in the contract when the covenant with me. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in you, but he has given us grace. That's right. 
He has given us grace. The world has given us slavery, and Jesus has given us grace. The scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he has given favor to the humble. So therefore, if you're getting chased by Laban, and, and that anxiety, and that pride, and that worry, and that fear continues to chase you, and God, I just need you to do something. I need you to rescue me. This is what, this is what God is saying to us. If you're being chased by the devil, submit yourself to God. Resist him. He has no authority over you. Yeah, he's got a lot of money, but he got no authority in Jesus' name. So resist him and trust. We will be from idol to idol to idol until we know Jesus. So, and I'm not Mr. like hate on the world guy because Jesus loves the world, right? But you got to know the culture and call it out sometimes. So we're in this cycle right now where we're canceling people, you know? We're, 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 we're doing things like as celebrities and then we're canceling stuff. And so what that has created, so I won't name, but it's like one of these celebrities, you know, over the weekend gets like called out by this documentary and like his past comes and haunts him, right? So, so the celebrity is now in deep hot water because like he's, the spotlight's on him, right? So there's PR people and their whole job is to make that celebrity look better. Like you know that, right? So the celebrity gets on Instagram and listen, I'm telling you, it's like a liturgy. You have to wait seven days, then you have to say, now I know that I'm such a bad guy and I've been doing some thinking now and I realize I'm sexist and racist and all these other isms, right? And this is, this is my penance to the world. This is me at the altar telling the world that I've changed. Don't get me wrong. I hate sexism. I hate racism. You hate racism. Nobody, nobody loves slavery. Like nobody sits here and says, I want us to slavery. You know what the problem is though? We don't hate slavery enough to turn from the idol of it, Right? And so the thing is, is that we have a shallow sense of repentance and the enemy's been doing things through colonialism and through, you know, Hollywood. And it's, it's just an old, new tricks, old tricker. You know, it's the same scheme. It's just in a new spot, right? But the manipulation point is here that we're going to get salvation by getting on Instagram and being sociologically uh, uh, educated, basically. Like that's our salvation. The salvation, what's the salvation? What's the altar? I'm coming onto Instagram I know my faults now. Now I'm a more mature, evolved person. And now I'm going to be saved because the people are going to like my stuff and subscribe and buy my videos. It's the same altar, right? He, right? We're, not, we're not getting saved here. We're, we're just jumping from one idol to the next. So the solution is not to figure out how to hate the world. Jesus loves the world. The solution is to hate the world inside of you. It's to find the idol inside of you and turn and trust. I love basketball shoes. There ain't nothing wrong with wearing basketball shoes. You know, Colossians says that, um, that faith and religion says, do not taste and do not touch and just, you know, never, never wear pants or don't dance or whatever it is that people are saying, right, that are things that are going to save us. It's not in the pants. It's in the idol. And getting on Instagram won't save us from the idol. Jesus saves us from the idol. And until Jesus is bigger and better than every other idol, we're just going to run from every idol to the next. And we'll be on to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing and the next thing until 20 years, it all falls down. And the only things that Jesus builds up is going to remain. So Jesus is trying to show us, like, where our appetite leads us. You know, if you love milk and you're addicted to milk, he's just trying to show you, that milk's sour, man. It's not going to lead you anywhere. Right? So, so he's, he's trying to show you, this is where the life ends up. And that's what COVID maybe does for us. COVID has been a shaken season. It's shaken things. And it's been disorienting and fatiguing and tiring because it's taken things that we have depended on and it's showed us that they're not God. And that stinks. That's really hard for us to reckon with. But it's good because it shows us his beauty and it shows us his love. So, so let, me, let me just put a couple questions up here and then I had three kind of like practical ideas, okay? So this is, what, this is what James says. If you're responding to this passage, come near to God. 
he will come near to you. The reason why you don't see Jesus and can't hear him and can't feel him, the Bible is saying is not because he's not here, it's because you don't want him. And you're full of other things and the desires of your heart are pining after other things. He's saying, I won't occupy a dual household in your heart. I want all of it or none of it. So, so what's happening here is that, is that James is saying, come near to God by purifying your hearts. First John says that we will become pure once we see him. When we see him, those who purify their hearts will be pure. So it's not the idol problem, it's the worship problem. If Jesus is not center, we're always going to have idols. So don't solve the idol problem, solve the worship problem. Get him in your heart, get him center and first. He's trying to save you and trying to save you from yourself. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The pure in heart will see God. The double-minded will not. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and joy. Humble yourselves because the Lord is about to lift you up today. Man, if you, if you are hungry for him, if you are humbled by him today, you call on him. He is bigger than any problem and better than any idol. And he will save you. He will not enslave you. This is, this is what our Jesus is doing. He's making peace out of hostility. He's coming. And if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. This is his promise. It happens every time. It's not a maybe, an if, or when. It's an always. Jesus will always draw near to you as you draw near to him. And so, so these are the questions. Where is Jesus not the center? I'm just going to read them and give you a, a couple seconds just to let the Spirit speak to you. Where is there barrenness that you're yearning for? The Bible says that you were created to be fruitful. You are meant to make an impact. But oftentimes we feel unfruitful and insignificant and powerless. And that's because we are without him. And so the decision at the fruitlessness point is am I going to go take it or trust for it? Where are you barren? It's not that something's wrong with you. It's not that you've sinned. It's not that there's some problem in the, in the matrix or in the force. He just, he doesn't play fair. He plays blessing. And he has some to be fruitful now and some to be fruitful later, but all are blessed in Jesus. You wait in due time, and he will bless you. He will bring the fruitfulness. We can't bring the fruitfulness, only he can. So let's trust, right? So number two, number two, where have idols given the world authority in my life? Oftentimes the panic and the pain and the problems, they're not really out there, they're really in here. And Jesus doesn't have a problem with storms being outside of your house. He doesn't want the storms inside of your heart. He doesn't care about you being in the middle of Egypt. He just doesn't want Egypt inside of you. And so Egypt has no authority over you unless you believe Egypt has your blessing. Then you will always be enslaved. You will always be enslaved to the thing you think the world can bless you for. Number three, how is the heap at Mizpah becoming the hill of Calvary for you? He is showing himself. He is revealing himself. And I would guess that even in your reception, your spinning, even as you're running away from Jesus, Jesus is somehow causing you to be drawn into him. And even as Jacob was coming back to Esau, he still had the promise. And I promise you, you have the promise in your hand. You are fruitful, even if you don't see it. I promise you, if you see the unseen realm, just your feet being in a place, proclaiming the word of Jesus. I was at a birthday party last, yesterday for little baby Selah Peavy. We sang whatever the top of the charts were for the Jesus storybook action adventure. I swear heaven shakes when that happens. Heaven shakes. The glow of a father and a mother teaching their kids to worship Jesus. Little baby Selah's arm is up. They're richer than anybody in Silicon Valley. They're blessed. They are fruitful in Jesus' name. You're more fruitful than you know. And he's changing these hills of hostility into fruit. The river of God in Ezekiel flows through 
the banks of the world, it flows into a salt water. And on the banks of that river is nothing but fruit and fruit that heals the nations. Jesus is your blessing. The money's not your blessing. Jesus is your blessing. And anything that you claim in Jesus' name is a blessing in your hand because he's a giver and he's not a taker. He's not trying to take. He's trying to give. So those are those three questions. The three practicals that, that, I, would, that I would let you think about here with me. Um, and I'll have the band to come forward. We're going to take communion. Y'all excited about communion? Yeah. At the center of the, of the hill of Calvary that relinquishes the control of the hill of hostility is the, is the bread and the cup. It communicates that we're treated like Jesus, not like Jacob. We're treated like Jesus because he was treated like us. That's what the gospel says. And so a couple ways that we participate in Sabbath, this is just maybe think about it. I wrote down uh, three things. I I said fasting, I said Sabbath, and I said prayer. How could we grow in the worship of Jesus in our homes? Sometimes I think the reason why we buy too much food at the supermarket is because we go in there starving. And sometimes I leave the supermarket and I don't get anything. It's because I'm too full. And so Jesus is saying we don't not see him because he's not there. We don't see him because we don't want him yet. And we're too full up of other stuff. Oh my goodness. So what fasting is, is that it's not a permanent, like, I'm never going to wear jeans again. It's just, it's separating myself from the contract of the world to go get called out in the wilderness to remind me of who he is again. So fasting is not, a, you know, a discipline to prove that you're better, right? Fasting is, is a posture that shows yourself and the Lord, that you're hungry and you're desperate. That's what that is. That's the physical manifestation of what it means to say, I'm not waiting on Laban to give me my promise. He's bankrupt. I'm waiting on you to give me my promise. And I'm not going to move until, you, until I receive it. I'm not going to look in any other place. That's what fasting is. Number two, you might consider Sabbath. I love John Mark Homer says that Sabbath is like Christmas every year. If you know how to do Christmas, just do it once a, once a week. Sorry. Every week is a Christmas. Pick a day. Plan the meals ahead of time. Work like heck the day before to get all the meals prepped and do nothing but board games and walks and cups of tea. Sabbath is not a vacation. It's a proclamation that God's on his throne and his work is done. We don't do Sabbath because our work's done. We do Sabbath because his work's done. So you're going to have to tell yourself, I didn't get done with my to-do list, but I don't care because Jesus is done with his work and his work's more important than my work. And the world doesn't revolve around me. So turn your phone off and get away in the wilderness and put him center again. Sabbath is, 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 is a part of our, of our heritage. All right, lastly is, is, is prayer and and so every, every week, you know, you grab a prayer journal. I got a, got a brand new stack out there. And it only has one error in it. I was happy with that, I guess. So, uh, but, but, um, but every day, you're going to make your plans. And if you don't make your plans, somebody else will make your plans for you. And I just challenge you on those six things to put Jesus at the center of your plans. You'll never be more restful. You'll never be more blessed. You'll never be more free than when Jesus is the center of your plans, the center of your steps. So lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord in all of his ways. And he will provide for you straight paths. That's the promise. Uh, will you stay with me? Let's pray. Um, Holy Spirit, I know that you're doing what you've done in these pages again. I know that you've called out little things and shown us hope and, and hopefully healing. And, and God, we sense even in COVID that, that the world is tumbling down. It's falling down on itself. But Lord Jesus, you are the rock that we can put our feet and the one that we will trust our blessing for. And Lord, for our days and for the years ahead, Lord, would we, would we walk in worship and teach our, 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 our children and our friends and our neighbors and the nations, the blessing of worship, to put you center, to put you first. And we just, we just declare right now that the world, the world um, manifests itself in different ways, in socialism and communism and all the other isms. But ultimately, it has no authority. 
In Jesus' name, you have told us that the world can neither hurt nor harm us, and so we're safe in you, Lord Jesus. So we worship you, Lord Jesus, and we put our faith and our trust in you, Lord Jesus, and our money and our relationships and our time and our rest and our work. We put it all before you, Jesus, because we know that in you we will find Sabbath. The world will give us slavery, but only you can give us rest. And so come to me, all you who are uh, burdened and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me, and you will find rest, says Jesus. Uh, we love you and trust you in things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's Tom for Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.